Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. And by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. On today's episode, we'll be talking about animals and animal-assisted therapy. Woo-woo-woo! Animals! Um, Jocelyn Nan from the Family Counseling Center in Edmonton is joining us to talk about her co-therapist and dog, Watson. I love Watson. Watson's so cute. And the work that they do to help a variety of clients dealing with emotional dysregulation issues, impulse controls, behavioral struggles, anxiety, low self-esteem, any trauma or severe loss, or even those who have sensory struggles. We'll also discuss our impact on the mental health of animals and how positive reinforcement when training pets can go a long way. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, Jocelyn Nadd. Thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, before we dive into the questions that we have for you, we'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and why and how you became interested in using animals in your practice. My name is Jocelyn Nand, and I'm a registered provisional psychologist, and I work in private practice. I'm a business owner. I run three offices, one in Edmonton, Beaumont, and Leduc. And aside from that, I'm a mom. So I'm a mom with two kids and they also keep me busy. I've got two dogs as well. I think it's a pretty fulfilling life, one that I pretty much enjoy. And I would say that my interest in utilizing animals really started off when I was in grad school. I was just thinking about my own experience and having had a dog and have always had one since I was 18, but never as a child. And um, I thought a lot about how I feel when I'm around my dogs and just how comforting the presence can be, just how attuned they are to you and just all the little nooks and crannies of their personality and temperament. And they're just so playful, right? So you can't, you can't not be playful with a dog that's trying to engage with you. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you can try to resist, but resistance is futile. It really is. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> yeah, it is. And so... Um, when I started working as an intern, and um, I was doing my master's program in BC, when I started off as an intern, and then later as a provisional psychologist, the first few experiences I had working with children were all with children who were in the foster care system. And so these were children who had really rough beginnings in life. Um, and the ones that were coming to see me were either currently in the foster care system we're in some kind of weird transition place between potentially going back to their biological caregivers or in the process of being adopted. And the one thing that I guess was in common, no matter what client I saw, it was their lack of trust in, in adults, actually, because so many of their experiences were just inconsistent um, and then, you know, there were abusive aspects in the, in the relationships with caregivers as well. And so the trust piece was just not there. And then when I would form relationships with them and I would build rapport and I would gain their trust, it would only be a matter of time before they were pulled from therapy or something would happen and it would be like inconsistent attendance. 
And then they come back like even more hardened and even more defensive. And so then it would, it would be like starting all over again in some ways, you know, and that's what kind of introduced me to, you know, maybe I should try having an animal in, in the therapy room and just see how that shifts the energy even when they come in. And so then I started doing training and I came to realize that not all the dogs that I owned were suitable for this work. <laughs> They were, um, they were lovely as my own pets and my own companions at home, but um, therapy work, not so much. Um, so then I started searching for a dog that would have a good temperament style and personality where there wouldn't be like risk factors in, in having them join into my work. And, and a lot of training went into this program. So there's a lot of postgraduate training that I did for myself. Um, and then a lot of training that I put my dog through as well. Um, so my dog, Watson, he is my animal co-therapist in the room and um, he's actually a rescue. And, and the more and more research and the more and more training that I did, the more I came to realize that this would be a great way for clients to feel safer in the room. Um, and then to just experience the same type of unconditional positive regard that I've experienced in even just having dogs as pets. So that was kind of the origins, I guess, of how I really dived into this work. What have you noticed when you when you did start implementing Watson into your therapy room? How did that change for you, the practice? Yeah, I think, you know, right from the beginning when when they're um, when Watson's waiting for them to come into the room or he greets them at that at the door, there's just such a level of excitement that he displays. And it's it's all positive. He's got his goofy smile, his tongue's hanging out of his mouth, and he's interested and totally attuned to them. And so just being greeted in a way where it's like, I'm so excited to see you, you matter to me. Um, that experience in and of itself just kind of helps people who are coming in a little bit guarded or um, nervous about the process just lighten up in in a lot of ways, right? And and their stress level kind of goes down because, especially when they're petting the dog, for instance, because we know from research that on a neurotransmitter level, like we're increasing the the release of serotonin, we've got oxytocin kind of coming in and regulating emotions and, and just kind of downplaying like cortisol levels that are often our stress hormones. And so, you know, and blood pressure would kind of start to normalize as well. So if they came in agitated, just even petting him was very calming and regulating and grounding. And then he was very attuned to them like they were to him. So if they were nervous or if they came in, you know, very adjusted, but then we got into a topic that riled them up in some way, he would kind of lean into them in those exact moments or, you know, he would just patiently sit in front of them. And he's a very tall and big dog. So you can't, <laughs> you can't avoid his presence. He's, he's 110 pounds. And oh, wow. <laughs> doesn't know it. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and so they would just allow him to kind of connect with them in that manner. And they would start petting him and, and then they'd be more regulated in the room and, and much more calm. And then with some clients, depending on what's going on in their world, there's often some kind of overlap in, in whatever narrative I have with Watson in his life outside with me, or just his life coming to my home that I can kind of also incorporate into therapy. So again, if I'm working with a child that 
you know, really has gone through one home environment to the other. When I share Watson's story and say, you know, like he was a rescue and he kind of went from one home to the other before he kind of came to us and what his experience was like, they can kind of, they know what it might be like. And I'm not having to put my own interpretations out there. I mean, I have empathy and I can express my empathy towards what they've experienced, but Watson kind of shares the same narrative. And so they're, they're almost able to relate with him because they're like, Oh yeah. Like we know what that's like. Yeah. Yeah. Who benefits the most from having this type of therapy with an animal in the room. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different types of clients that benefit from this. I think anyone who has any emotional dysregulation issues. So we're talking like impulse controls, behavioral struggles, anxiety, low self-esteem, any trauma or severe loss, like all of those kind of issues work really well. Kids even who have like sensory struggles or even are on the autism spectrum. So children and adults with all of these types of issues would benefit from him being in the room. And that's just because a lot of the goals in animal-assisted therapy or even animal-assisted play therapy really gets into some of these presenting concerns that clients come in with. So, you know, the goal is to foster empathy and to build those skills. The goal is to kind of help them regulate and have a sense of, you know, if I was really loud and screaming in the room and Watson moved away from me, oh, well, what's going on for Watson? Can we tune into that? Um, And then they're like, oh, it's because I was loud, so I need to be quieter. Um, It's very different rather than me coming in with a, a limit you know, and telling them that if we're not quiet, Watson's not going to, like, it's not shaming language then. Mm, I like that. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's there's other aspects as well from the attachment standpoint. So if we were to talk about a healthy attachment style with a caregiver early on in life versus an unhealthy, insecure attachment style, people who have had healthy ones and secure attachments they have had someone meet their needs, regardless of what those needs are. So whether it's their emotional needs, whether it's providing them with consistent care and stability in their environment, that's been met. And so when they kind of meet a dog, they kind of already have this operating framework. And so it's a little bit easier to kind of build the empathy pieces and and the focus on nonverbal cues. But for a child, let's say, or even an adult who hasn't experienced a healthy, secure attachment style, and it's more insecure, they haven't had that consistent sense of support and nurture. If they were crying, maybe they were left crying for hours and hours before anyone kind of came. They may not have that existing framework, but when they experience it from a dog or an animal in general, um, there's something about that experience that helps them start building the foundational blocks for it, which then the therapist kind of harnesses and builds and facilitates more on. But yeah, it's it's a really powerful thing to see that they can then connect and, and almost receive the attention they're getting from Watson in a much different way than they would from me, because I, as the adult, have an agenda. You know, um, they're being sent to see me, let's say, for a particular reason. And so they think that they need to behave a particular way to earn whatever they think that, you know, whether it's my trust or acceptance for the dog or animal, it's very different. It's it's just being in their presence and being accepted in their presence and, and kind of nurtured. <laughs> I know for myself, I didn't grow up with animals. Well, uh, full disclosure, Heather's actually very allergic to animals. So we didn't grow up with animals or we <laughs> had them and then Heather made them go away. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
I did. It was doves. Okay. They, we, I had I, a pet dove and she was allergic to my pet dove. But anyway, um, that's a whole other story. But I, so I haven't had dogs until my adult life. And I, I uh, started dating my now husband and he had, he had a black lab and just loved this dog and this dog changed his life. And so this is the first time I lived with a dog and I really liked her. I was like, yeah, this dog's cool. Okay. We have a dog. And then I found my dog. And so we got a second dog named Penny. And like, I met her at a dog rescue event. And it was just like, I just, I needed her. Like there was some sort of weird connection. And I like started sobbing and my husband's like, are you okay? I'm like, there's something about this dog. I just need this dog. And then I noticed, like, I thought that I could see sense the the calmness when I was with Abby. But there's something about me and Penny where I just made this connection with her. And she can sense if I'm starting to feel anxious or if I'm, like, she, and she'll come to me and she'll, she'll like, be like, okay, put her, her paw on my knee to, like, make sure, like, mom, are you, like, I'm here. Let's have a pet. So there's something about having a connection with an animal that brought me, that, that calms me down. I don't know where I'm going with that. I just, to share that I've experienced it and I can see the value just in my day-to-day life. One of my questions is, I noticed on your site that you actually have more than just dogs. You have like cats and goats, I think, and horses. Can you kind of walk through the other animals that work in your practice and maybe, I don't know, a laundry list of benefits of like, what can a goat do for somebody? I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, goat, sheep, rabbits, chickens, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the sky's kind of the limit to some degree, although I would say some are some are better at some of the therapeutic goals we're trying to have in place than others. Um, you know, there's a sensory component as always where, you know, with kids who, um, let's say, have struggles with different types of sensations and touches and textures, um, it can be quite regulating to experience Um, just animal fur in and of itself. So like a sheep's texture is quite different than a horse or a dog. And so sometimes just um, growing comfort in some of those sensory struggles that they're experiencing is nice. Um, But almost the research would say that, you know, all the things that I kind of talked about earlier can be facilitated with training um, and the right temperament of animal as well for all of these types of goals that we have for whether it's, you know, um, emotional regulation, whether it's fostering empathy, whether it's building problems, solving skills, or growing like cognitive skills, um, and for some even speech skills, right? So some children, I'm thinking about ones who have like selective mutism, for instance, where they won't speak in any environment, or there's only a few environments they speak in, but not others. It's a very different experience to then be around animals, because there's almost again, that agenda piece, right? Like when they're around adults or other caregivers, there's almost like this pressure to maybe do something. Whereas with the animals, they can just be and they can play. And that's almost one of our first opportunities of learning anything in life is through play, right? When you get to do that with animals, you almost, whether you're an older child, a child kind of getting that experience for the first time or an adult, you kind of go back to those foundational elements of of play and and the way that we connect and relate with others. Um, And so I would say that regardless of what animal it is, um, the benefits are definitely there. We do have more research with certain animals. So Um, so like equine assisted therapy with horses and canine assisted therapy, um, when you search those up, definitely more research in that area. Um, And then there's growing research with other animals as well. 
there's limitations on what we can do, right? We can't train a chick to do the same thing <laughs> that we can train a dog and horse to do. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's different animals that can be utilized for different goals and components of what we're after. But I would say overall, it's, it's that those elements. And then I think where it's outside of a traditional office space, at least for the horses and the other barn animals, there's almost an aspect of nature therapy that kind of gets incorporated into that as well, right? So you're, you're really, really grounded then, not only just with the animal, but then with nature. And it's harder to not be in that moment then, rather than being taken away by your anxieties or whatever else that you might be thinking about. Okay. I'm, I'm curious then, because like, you know, we're talking about all these different animals and someone actually asked on Twitter, you know, what makes, because I'm, because I know that certain people will have therapy pets, but they're very wide ranging mm-hmm. in terms of the animals that make someone feel the most comfortable or reduces their anxiety. But what makes us like cat people, dog people, like, is there something innate in us or, or they said, or mental <laughs> that leads us to prefer one over the other? Or, you know, why do we gravitate towards a certain pet to feel calmness over another? I'm just really curious. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I have like a research supported answer for that, but my hunch would be that a lot of it has to do with our own personalities and our own characteristics, right? And so when we see something like that, um, that's similar in, in the animal that we're choosing or that we're around, there almost is this mirroring effect that happen. And so we, we just naturally kind of gravitate towards them, I would say, um, And anytime I talk about, like when I ask people like why they like the certain pets that they have, they'll give all sorts of different reasons. And (laughs) often I'm like, there's actually a fair bit of overlap here between like who you are and your likes and dislikes and (laughs) and the style of your cat in some ways. Um, So, I mean, I don't, again, not a research supported answer there, but I think a lot of it does have to do with, with our own stuff that we then project onto the animals. That leads to another question that was actually asked on Twitter is how can our mental health impact our animals' mental health? Yeah. So coming back to that concept of mirroring, it goes both ways, right? So, you know, even when I think about my own experiences of having a dog and some of the milestones or challenges in my own life, hardships that I've kind of been through and having my dog kind of be with me through them, there's a witnessing component for them too. And so this is where like even animal welfare as a topic kind of ends up coming into even the work that I do. It's a strong component of the Mm. work I do because as we are impacted by them, they are impacted by us. So if we're in a high stress kind of arousal state all the time and our dogs or our cats or whatever our our animals are that are around us, they're being impacted. And so their stress levels can change. Mm -hmm. Um, This is an area that requires a little bit more research just to see like how we impact the animal stress levels. Um, But there, there is an impact. And, you know, there's, there's even growing literature to say that, animals might actually also have some like mental health related issues, right? So if you think about if there's a house that has more than one pet in it, and all of a sudden, you know, we go from having three dogs to one, or even two, that dog is going to notice Mm -hmm. that my other companions are no longer there. And so we see a drop in mood. And so I think that, you know, there is a huge, um, overlap and again not an area that's researched as much as I would like it to be but I I do think that there is a strong impact that we have and so in in my work that I do there's often caution in 
has my dog had enough time to play and have a break between like really intense sessions where I know clients are coming in with like really heavy stuff. Right. And, um, and other times, like there's a, there's a strong focus on the cues. So it's, it is taxing to kind of do what I do in some ways too, because I'm paying attention to the client's cues. I'm paying attention to Watson's cues. And then I'm paying attention to my own to kind of, you know, analyze in some ways, like what's needed in the situation. But there's, there's a lot of room for harm, I think, mm. when we don't incorporate animal welfare into the, into our conversations and the things that we do. What are some things that you notice where you're like, you know, I think it's that Watson needs a break now. Like, what are some things that you notice about, you know, in your practice that may also be reflective of you? Like, when do you need a break from this? Because it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a few different signs for animal stress. Um, I'm going to talk about the dog specific ones. So sometimes, you know, boredom, excessive sleep, excessive turning away from like not being interested in what's kind of going on. You know, dogs do sleep a lot of the day too. Um, so sometimes it's figuring out, is it actual tiredness and fatigue that would be normal? Or is is my dog disengaging from this client for a particular reason? So that's where like looking at the person's cues and what's going on for them is also helpful then. So all the context information, but otherwise like excessive panting, um, if he's, you know, not really settling down, there's something that's going on for him. If the whites of his eyes are showing, like a lot of people, like for instance, like when they, um, if they go to hug their dogs, which is not actually something the dogs are used to, except for Watson, who's done a lot of training. With <laughs> him, so he's he's kind of used to it, but yeah. most dogs, not so much. They give a stress response. And so you see almost what looks like a smile, but then their eyes are kind of off and you see the corners being oh, very white. Okay. Um, and that's, that's a stress signal. Um, their hackles kind of going up, their fur kind of starting to rise. That's a stress signal. Um, growling, um, excessive licking even, you know, can also show boredom. So there's, there's a lot of different signs that I'm kind of paying attention to salivation also being one of them. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a few and with each animal, there's different cues and signs you would pay attention to. Um, but the most familiar that I am is with was Watson because I don't um, I don't engage in the equine piece myself yet, mm -hmm. although I have some training in it. <laughs> I'm curious, actually, how much training, extra training, did you have to do to incorporate animals into your therapy? Yeah, so I think there's like um, I would almost describe it as different phases and stages of training. Mm -hmm. So first, you know, you're you're trying to kind of find a dog who has the right temperament who is not going to respond to sensory stimuli in a way that is agitated or increases the risk for something happening, harm coming to the animal or, or the person in the room. Um, so I remember I took um, a few different workshops. It was actually some I took from the, um, I think it was the Edmonton Humane Society, and they had done some therapy dog types trainings, which oh, are cool. very different than animal assisted work. Um, so therapy dog training is more where your animal is kind of accompanying you to different environments. And, you know, there's that tactile touch and regulating component. They're very grounding, but there isn't like clinical therapy that's kind of taking place with that. Right. And so in that class, we would have wheelchairs coming towards mm. him. We would have walkers coming towards him, you know, loud noises kind of going off and really kind of playing on the startle response and then, you know, getting him desensitized to some of those things. 
Same thing with touch. You know, we always have limits in the room and there's a lot of preparation that takes place before clients get to see the animal. Um, So, you know, there's a sharing of like what commands he knows, what's the appropriate types of touch that can or can't be done and and what would happen if it continues, like those types of things. So then it's not uncommon for me, you know, when I was training Watson to put my hands into his mouth and feel for his teeth and, you know, um, really feel his gums and and touch his paws and play with his tail, all the different types of things that someone might do to him on purpose or accidentally, right? And kind of gauge his response. So there's that aspect of it. There's the actual obedience training aspect of it, which is used through positive reinforcement. That's the only thing that I support um, when it comes to training animals. And then there was the postgraduate training that I took. And so I did my training with a woman who's in the United States. Her name is Reese Van Fleet. And um, she's actually a published author and trainer in play therapy, as well as animal assisted therapy and animal assisted play therapy. And so we basically learned the foundations of what is canine communication? What is equine communication? What does it look like? Stress kind of um, body cues. Um, And then it was building in the clinical aspects of, okay, you have these presenting concerns that come in. How do you kind of integrate the animal that you are working with and assist the client with whatever it is that they're struggling with? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, different interventions or activities that might be good. Um, So I'll give you an example. So for instance, I have some little ones that come to see me and, and they'll have um, separation anxiety, for instance. Mm -hmm. And Some dogs, if they don't start with it at some point in their life, if you close the door and leave them in the room, they'll whine and whine and whine and whine, right? Um, And so, you know, I'll have my clicker and my treats handy and I'll say, okay, you know, Watson is having a really hard time being away from us. And what are some ways that we can help him with this, right? So we're going to reinforce treats every time we come back and he's, you know, and he's waiting there quietly and comfortably and all the reassurance pieces that we might do. And, and I'm actively involving the child as they're doing this work with me. And so then they are building the problem solving skills as well. That's cool. Yeah. And then I'm, you know, kind of supplementing the pieces that may not have intuitively come to them. Oh, that's so cool because you're like, it doesn't seem as scary, maybe like I'm not sitting in this on this couch and this lady's not telling me if you're feeling anxious, you should try this. Like, (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a that's a wonderful example. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. Um, And then again, with, you know, what I alluded to earlier with kids who have like impulse struggles or um, are very loud um, or social skills are kind of lacking, then then we're able to kind of say, oh, I wonder what was going on for Watson when X, Y, Z happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's always through curiosity that we kind of put it out there and they almost always have the right answer, right? Like not that there is a wrong answer, but they'll be like, oh, you know, he did that every time I was loud or he did that every time when I came up too fast towards him, you know? Mm. And it's like, and then I can kind of, you know, once we do that piece, then I can kind of maybe bring it up to consciousness a little bit and say, I wonder if that's what happens with your friends sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And and then, and then there's that connection piece that happens. And so then work outside of therapy can then take place as well, where then they're like, oh yeah, so that's maybe what it's like for my friends when I do that. They don't really like that, even though Mm -hmm. that's not my intention. So yeah, the skills kind of go past the counseling room then and get applied into real life. So when you're working with patients and working with Watson, do you have 
like a mix of sessions where sometimes it's Watson sessions and sometimes it's not Watson sessions. Yes. Yeah. Talk therapy isn't necessarily for everyone and isn't, you know, the first thing that we go to all the time with clients. I've taken training in other areas as well. So art therapy being kind of one of those sand play and sand tray therapy, and then the animal assisted ones you, you know of. Um, and then there's like parent child work that I'll do as well. So I'll, I'll alternate depending on like what I see the needs being for the client um, and where their struggle is. So sometimes we might need to kind of do some more focused, like learning pieces where Watson maybe is more of a distraction in that moment. So maybe I'll do sessions without him for that and then come back to something different. Or if they don't want to necessarily confide in Watson and we're working through something that was a past trauma, for instance, it might be engaging them in an art activity where they might do something and make it, but then not necessarily have to share it with me and they can kind of just bury it or put it wherever. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, there's just, the sky's kind of the limit when you have more options available. I'm curious to hear how your life altered when you started um, bringing Watson into your practice and having him as an option in your in your line of work. It's interesting that you asked that question because it's it's one that I often think about. <laughs> it's because <laughs> you know, like it's it's almost it's almost like the same level of commitment that you put into preparing for a child, right? Like it's. Yeah. Different having a, a pet and, and and a mom and being a mom of children. I've experienced both now, but the preparation aspect of it kind of seems very similar where it's like, okay, like I got to ensure I've got all the things and I got to ensure that, you know, there's not any reactions and food-based things and <laughs> all the things that I would worry about. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because where I, he's home with me and I get to work with him, my attachment to him has increased as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, this is this is the therapist in the room being impacted by, you know, um, what's being shared, right? And so he's he's my co-therapist. So he he helps me kind of signal into something that I might not necessarily be cued in on because I'm focusing on the verbal aspect of it, right? Or I might be focusing on the body aspect of it on in another moment because you know there's something he did that kind of raised my attention there. I think it's also helpful sometimes for my own grounding. I mean, not that you need a therapy animal as a, as a therapist to ground yourself, yeah, yeah. but he, he ends up being a grounding source for me as well, where, you know, if there's something that's kind of going on and, um, and I'm feeling that, you know, there's, there's some stronger emotions coming from me. Um, the client may not know it, but I can experience it in my body. And so I often find it regulating to have him in the room as well for myself in a more like, I guess, con slash negative component of it sometimes is sometimes when you have your own animal that is a part of your personal life and your personal family, and something happens in the room where it's kind of bordering on abuse or, or mistreatment of him, it's a little bit harder in that moment to put my own emotions aside then mm, yeah. to be like, okay, the focus still here is on everyone's safety, but then I also need to support this client in, in working through the issues that they are struggling with while not getting defensive and aroused because my personal family member has yeah. also just had something happen. To picture Watson being in the room with you and like him looking at you like, hey, Hey mom, did you notice that? Like the co-therapy <laughs> aspect is just such a wonderful thing to just visualize. I think that's 
um, yeah, having an extra set of ears and eyes in the room with you it must be so helpful. <laughs> yeah, each you know each dog has their own like strengths, right? So another part of the training was, you know, what is your dog's strength? So he's very like scent driven. So and food driven. So it's, it's really nice for me to then have activities and interventions that really play in on that strength to be like, okay, we're going to play hide and seek in the room, but we're going to do it with treats. And your job is to give Watson cues to see where they are. And he's kind of using his nose to the ground and doing this work and it's, it's playful and it's fun. And then I never knew this about him, but when I started to do like sand play or sand tray work with clients, they would go to my shelves and it's filled with different figures and different objects, all thematically organized for making pictures in the sand of anything really. And what he started to do is he would follow them. And then every now and then he would select something off of the shelf <laughs> and just bring it to them being like, I think you should put this in the tray. And, and <laughs> sometimes they would use it. And other times they'd be like, Oh, thanks Watson. But mm, I don't think I want to use that. <laughs> But it was really interesting. So I'm like, maybe he has like a sand play fetish in some degree. Yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but again, like that playful aspect of, you know, that's that's a Watson thing. Like there are some things that I can't train in him and mm. there are things I can't train out of him. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just like, I want to make art. Can someone let me make some art, please? Come on. <laughs> Dying to be an yeah. artist. Yeah. <laughs> And when the weather's warm and nice too, like it just, it can take us outside of the counseling office too, where it's like, well, maybe we're just, we're talking and we're outside and there he's playing fetch and, or we're just walking in general and they're petting him. And it's just, again, calm and regulating. There's movement attached to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. What are some misconceptions that you think are out there about animal therapy? I think sometimes... While it's true that with any animal, there's always risks, um, I know one one misconception I often come across is if someone has had negative experiences with an animal before, that animal-assisted therapy isn't going to be ideal for them. And that's actually not always the case. It can actually be a really good way of working through that. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we think about things that we're, that we're anxious of, and do we really want someone to continue being anxious of something long-term if we can come in and kind of do some work around it? I think some of the other pieces that are common misconceptions is any of the language that I find, like the language ends up being kind of disheartening where it's like, well, the dog is almost seen as an object, as a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very careful, even in, in, as I was giving my responses, like I I was very careful in what I, what I said about him and, and how he's integrated into my work. Mm-hmm. I don't say used. I don't, you know, there's certain language that I just don't um, utilize because it kind of gives that misconception that he's just something that I get to take in and take out and there's no consideration for, for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, I think, you know, again, with just different presenting concerns where it's like, well, you know, my child has a lot of sensory struggles and I just don't know because what if this or what if that, but sometimes because of, again, the playful aspect of it, they're maybe able to tolerate his licks, whereas normally they would hate getting wet. One experience I think that recently happened was um, in regards, well, COVID has been really interesting for that, right? So I can put in limits and things in place and can prepare clients really well. But sometimes when the clients do something that they're not supposed to do, it's a little bit harder to then say, well, we can, we can have therapy in the parameters that were, that was set. Um, Mm -hmm. So when masks were on and people had just come from eating, 
Then I had a dog who's in their space, licking the mask, and all these pieces, right? And so then I'm just sitting here being like, okay, like, this is why we have like limits. This is why we have these pieces, but sometimes it doesn't go as planned or, you know, someone says they comprehend something, but then in practice, it looks different. Yeah. Um, and so it, it can be a little bit of a struggle to then, and to then let clients know that, okay, like we're going to have to change something up. And not all presenting concerns and not all clients are actually suitable for doing this type of work, right? So if someone has had a long history of lots of animal cruelty, am I going to begin with Watson right away? Probably not. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of different risk factors that I'm going to look through first. Yeah, I, I would say those are some of my top ones that come up. Also emphasis on like language of the good dog versus the bad dog, right? And so there's, there's a lot of socialization that needs to take place. And so I don't think I don't think any animal is really good or bad, especially in, you know, when we talk about a therapy setting or even in pet ownership in general, I think it's a lot about socialization and research and helping people understand um, what's involved because sometimes we place a lot of responsibility on the animal to not do something or to do something. And and that's actually not okay. And it's kind of sad because that's why a lot of them end up in um, rescue shelters or sadly even get put down. Yeah. 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 I'm going to kind of just jump off the back of what I just asked about misconceptions because, okay, animals are in so many films and so many TV shows to the point that there's a show movie out right now called Dog. Like, I mean, they're not even hiding it. No, I'm joking. It was actually um, good. I watched Dog. It was, I liked yeah. Dog. Anyway, continue. <laughs> I was just, I was trying to be funny. It wasn't that funny, but it's okay. <laughs> but I'm curious, like, what kind of things would you love to see more in the media that we see, maybe that could help around some of these misconceptions, because it's not just about therapy, it is about dog ownership, or sorry, not just dog ownership, but animal ownership. Mm -hmm. So what would you like to see more um, when we're thinking about the television shows and the movies that are being made and created? Yeah, well, I'll start with the one thing that I think that they always get that's really solid. And one, you know, the one thing that I think is a positive depiction is, is the actual bond that can be formed, right? They Hollywood gets that really well. Um, and they portray that very well. Um, I think some of the pieces that aren't portrayed well, or then lead to misconceptions, or things that make me cringe, <laughs> are just, again, again, like not really a regard for the actual animal, um, and its well being. So it's like, when you were shooting, did that animal have, like, how many breaks did that animal have? Mm-hmm. Expected, and how was the training itself done? And was it positive reinforcement? Um, I think in an ideal world, if, if three people could kind of get together to make a book, I would say they should consult a therapist who does this type of work. They should have a veterinarian and then an animal trainer that uses positive reinforcement all come together to write a book or make a movie because I think people are misinformed about what is okay and not okay to do around animals. And there's a lot of outdated stuff that's still out there. So Mm -hmm. any depiction of, you know, this alpha attitude of like Mm -hmm. having to dominate the animal, like that's, that's actually not healthy or helpful. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, you know, there was also like Caesar Milan's like pack mentality stuff. Like that's been debunked like ages ago, but it's still out there. Mm -hmm. Hot collars and, 
even just not knowing that it's probably better for a dog to have a harness on their back versus a collar around their neck and, you know, pulling at it and what kind of damage that does over time. And, and so that's where I kind of go back to the, if three people could get together and write a book, it would be a really good book because then <laughs> we talk about all the different things and in a healthy, positive way. Um, same thing with, you know, treating animals like objects. So painting them, dressing them up, um, anything where it's very clear that there's stress signals and, mm. you know, the humans are like, Oh, look, what a great thing. But the animals are, if you look and pay attention to the animals, they are not saying the same thing through mm. their, through their communication. Um, and it's, it's hard, I think, because of this, this concept of um, anthropomorphism where we mm. assign human you know, characteristics and traits to animals, right? And so on the one hand, there's great bonding that happens because of it. But on the other hand, um, we project a lot of stuff that actually is not, <laughs> is not theirs. Yeah. Um, and in doing so, I think that's where some of the, some of the harm takes place, right? Okay, so if you could make tomorrow a movie, what would you love to see featuring Watson? Yeah, I, I think it would be you know, the human bond to animals would definitely still be there. Um, I think anything that comes from Watson's vantage point of what it's like for him to engage in any of the work that he's doing, you know, his cues, his stress, having someone actually comment on what's taking place would be great rather than the human just doing whatever they're doing and the dog just kind of going along and it just being this, oh, look how cute that is moment rather than a actually <laughs> this is what's happening. like yeah. I don't know if he was um so yeah I would I would say something along that lines um and then just you know I think the positive attributes of of having an any animal that that you get to kind of be with and and how um how grounding it can kind of be and and what a positive experience it is for healing as well uh, I would love to see like a depiction of like someone who's gone through a mental health struggle and, and them like talking about how it was beneficial for them. And then having like clips on the dog kind of and more of a focus on the dog. So you hear the voice of the person and what they're struggling with, but more of like that vantage point of the camera being on the dog being like, what's the dog doing right yeah, now? Like, yeah. Kind of, kind of something like that would I think be really neat and fascinating because then it kind of takes your perspective and your framework into that space um, rather than just on the person. Right. Yeah. So definitely, definitely that. That's cool. Oh, I'd watch that. I like that. Let's go dog two yep. Watson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also I feel like you need to write a book with a dog trainer. A positive. Like that's your next thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> write that book. Oh, well, like, hmm, maybe I need to talk to my veterinarian. Yeah. All of this stuff. And then talk to the lady who did my journey. Exactly. Like, it's always interesting to think about like my own experience of having a dog in my home and in my life and then the therapy aspect of it as well. And, you know, I, I think about even like the aspect of dog loss or animal loss, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. people are like, Oh, you know, like don't own one because eventually they're going to go and it's going to be this horrible thing because you're going to hurt and grieve and, and all those things. But I think our animals end up being a little bit like record keepers for us, though they may not be able to speak. They, they do witness us in whatever we live mm -hmm. through. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and that was no different for me when I lost my first dog. Like I realized 
how much she kind of held for me in, in mm-hmm. some way, right? Because I went from high school to undergrad to grad school and then got married and, and then had a kid and she was with me through all of that. Um, and so, you know, when she left, I was like, oh, here's this, here's this presence that I no longer have. And, and yes, it's heartbreaking, but I think it's also a good learning experience, especially for a younger age group on loss um, because we don't really get a good healthy version of that. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't get good healthy versions of, but <laughs> true. another like taboo topic, right? Like we're almost better in society talking about sex than we are like about loss and grieving. Um, and so I almost wish that there was more even in that, in that area of, you know, there's all of these movies. Maybe we'd have to do episodes. Yes. It has been, maybe it's a TV yeah, show. Maybe TV yeah, show. We'll do a TV yeah. show. Well, that leads us to, do you have any resources that you could recommend to our listeners to engage in, in animal therapy? Yeah. So the sad thing is that when you go to Google and you <laughs> animal assisted therapy, what comes up is a bunch of like training information, but nothing really specifically geared towards like people who need to understand what this work looks like. And so I would say any anywhere in the city that when you search in animal assisted play therapy or animal assisted therapy in Edmonton, um, there are different organizations. So us being one of them, um, there's um, oh, Dream Catchers is another one. Hooves of Hope is another. Um, and these are all filled with like different resources or just a, a small enough breakdown of what to expect and what the benefits are. And regardless of whether they think they're going to pursue it or not, they can always ask, you know, depending on the place for just a consult for a free consult on like, tell me a little bit about why this would be beneficial if I'm coming in with this presenting concern. Um, And I think a therapist who's trained in that area is able to then really kind of get to the heart of what some of their hesitancy is around or where this would be really great as a fit or where it maybe wouldn't be a good fit right now in this moment until some other things maybe took place. And if someone wanted to pursue being a therapist like you did, mm. I know you said you had to go to the States for training. There are places that people, like, we'll have listeners, well, we have listeners from all, from all over the world. The world. Yeah. But as, <laughs> but where can people start to look at, like, how do I start to incorporate this? Or even, like, I'll, I'll, I'm going to add another thing um, about positive reinforcement and, like, the kind of theories behind that. Yeah, I think when you search up positive reinforcement dog training, like, there's there's at least... a a plethora of things you can find there. Um, One of my favorite books just in helping um, families and of all ages kind of come to terms with a dog in their home or a pet in their home is, um, is this book. It's called Kids and Dogs, a professional's guide to helping families. And this one kind of goes through like the misconceptions, some of the body cues. Um, So that's, a really good one to just kind of start with as a precursor. Um, as far as doing what I do, it's not, um, you don't necessarily have to be a psychologist. You could be a counselor, you could be a social worker. Um, all of them kind of have different, depending on which route you kind of take, um, they all have their different requirements as far as education and then their respective licensing body. But postgraduate training even though this woman, Reese Van Fleet, she's out in the state, she had actually come to Vancouver um, and had hosted a training. So I had done it there. Um, and then she's got a facility. Um, I believe Dream Catchers also has a lot of training that they put on. Who's of Hope does the same thing. Um, so there's lots of training that people can take, even if they don't utilize it 
you know, as a social worker, as a therapist, as a counselor, as a psychologist, if they're interested in it. And they almost maybe get to start there first uh, in some ways, but there, there might be limitations where, you know, the clinical information may not make as much sense to them if they don't have some of those prerequisites ahead of time. Um, but I, but I do think it's an area that we need more qualified and trained people to be in because there's just so many benefits and why not utilize it? One last thing where if anybody is in the Edmonton area and would like to come to your practice, where can they find you? Yeah. So if you search www.familycounselingcenters.com, all of our office locations are there. And specifically for me, I work out of the um, Edmonton and Beaumont location right now. Um, And then once my children are a little bit better at being independent, (laughs) then I'll also have some hours in Leduc over time. But right now I'm in Edmonton and, and Beaumont, and those are the offices I practice out of. And there are a number of therapists who have also done the same level of vigorous training that I have. Um, and so they are also able to support. And those names are Chantal Thorlickson. Um, there's also Sierra Chimlier. I hope I pronounced her last name right. And Danny Neufeld. Um, those are clinicians also at our office that specialize in that. They've taken extensive training in the area. Um, some work with equines. So with uh, the equine assisted model, just with horses, others do a combination of both. Some have therapy animals of their own, some do not, Um, but there's options. And like I said, there's other places in the city as well. Fantastic. Well, just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, This has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. I know very little about (laughs) it. No, I know. I know about animals, um, but I just thought it was so fascinating. Um, And I love that Watson is your co-therapist. I think when you said that, I was like, of course he is. And what a wonderful title to have. Yeah. I want to meet Watson. Yeah. <laughs> I love him already. <laughs> <laughs> I should have brought him in. <laughs> it's been a pleasure chatting with you ladies. And it's it's nice to know that even opportunities like this exist for people to kind of tune into and, and learn about things that may not be discussed in any other platform. So this is great work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Chatting with Jocelyn reinforced why I have such a strong relationship with my pups, which is awesome, and reminded me how we can affect our dogs too, so or our animals. So it's just something that you know I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. But the really awesome thing that I just did this weekend, which is very kind of perfect timing for this episode, is finally I finally rode a horse. <laughs> I've never gone horseback riding, and um, in my line of work, I've done a lot of documentaries and TV series that kind of surround horses. Yeah. So I've learned about how you ride a horse. I learned how you groom a horse. I've, and I've learned, I've like done segments of that in French and in English. (laughs) So like very well versed in the knowledge about horses, Mm -hmm. but myself have never been on one. And so me and my daughter were in Jasper and we, I decided like, we're going to go horseback riding. So we were horseback riding in the mountains. Oh, wow. It was beautiful. I took some video, which we will share. I was on the biggest horse. His name was Charlie. He was one of those <laughs> Clydesdale horses that has like mm-hmm. the fur legs. Like he was huge. <laughs> and at first I was a little nervous, but he like knew, like he was just like, whatever, we're just going for a walk. It's cool. When we first got to the stables, we got to like say hi to a bunch of horses. This one horse I went up to and like I actually felt an overwhelming calm when I was petting him. And I was like, oh my gosh, I get it now. I get mm-hmm. why this works for people. 
And because I probably was feeling a little nervous going horseback riding for the first time with my six-year-old daughter, like, what if something goes wrong? You know, there was some nerves there. And then one point during the ride, I realized this was like a big moment in my brain is I have done so much work where I've, I've watched people experience life through Mm -hmm. editing. So I've been around the world, which is really exciting. That's the, that's the fun part about my job. I've been around the world experiencing these awesome experiences through other people's eyes. And it was the first time that I was sitting on this horse, seeing the same views I've seen in the footage I've worked with, but Mm. experiencing it in real time with myself. And I just like started to cry as I am now. It was a really special moment. And I feel so lucky that I got to experience that. That's so amazing. I have an awesome thing that is based in the world of science, as as always, as always <laughs> per usual. So this is something I saw actually go around the internet a couple days ago. And it actually came from a 2014 article in The Atlantic. And it was basically about the idea of, of neurochemical re- research that shows that the hormone release when people are in love is released in animals in the same intimate circumstances. So I thought really? that was super cool. Yes. Aww. So the example, basically it was, they were looking at oxytocin levels in animals. And so they basically, in the animal experiment, 100 participants came into the lab and they obtained blood samples from them to just establish like their baseline state. And then they went to a private room and played with a dog or cat for 15 minutes and then did a second blood draw and then had participants interact with each other to see how they behave towards humans too. If animals cause oxytocin release in humans, it would explain the attachment to that we would have to animals. Totally, yeah. And so basically, previous studies showed that when humans engage in social activity with each other, oxytocin levels typically increase between 10% and 50%. So you can measure it in your blood. And so... It's like really depends on who it is. Your daughter running to you could be 100%, you know, a stranger shake your hand could be 10%. So the dog and cat study showed that neither species consistently increased it in humans. Only 30% of participants had an increase in oxytocin after playing with an animal. And it basically, they said the one factor that predicted whether playing with a dog would increase it was the lifetime number of pets that a person had owned. And same thing with cats. So it's just basically greater lifetime pet ownership caused it to fall where it fell. Mm -hmm. Um, dogs reduce stress hormones better than cats. Probably not a surprise. (laughs) Cats can be assholes. (laughs) Don't really care. (laughs) I love cats because they're just like, they're assholes sometimes. And I just love that (laughs) about them. Basically, there's this human canine bond that's really powerful and important. Now, what I really wanted to talk about, so I just wanted to give you that (laughs) as a preamble. The thing that I'm super excited about is that they basically, you know, dogs and other mammals exhibit play, like human, um, the human-like behavior of play. So this, so this person was interested and curious if animals can form friendships with other animals. So they took apart the small-scale experiment for BBC where they tested it. Um, they wanted to see if cross-species animal play could cause this oxytocin synthesis. Um, so it would be biological evidence for animal friendships. So essentially, at an animal refuge... In Arkansas, where a large variety of animals do interact with each other, they obtained a blood sample from a domestic mixed breed terrier and a goat (laughs) that played with each other. (laughs) So their plays like chase each other, jumping around, engaging and fighting like things that, you know, bearing teeth and snarling. They're both young males. Um, So they place a dog and goat into an enclosure together and let them play. 
So they did their blood sample first and they let them play and a second blood sample was done. So they found that the dog had a 48% increase in oxytocin. So this showed that the dog was quite attached to the goat. So they're like the moderate change would suggest that the dog viewed the goat as a friend. The more striking results was the goat reaction to the dog. It had a 210% increase in oxytocin. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And at that level increase, they realize that that's more about love. So oh. they think the goat might be in love with the dog. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I thought that was amazing. But also just the fact that animals um, can love and animals create bonds with each other as well as they do with humans. Reminds me another cute animal story is we came home from Jasper, just my daughter and I went. And so the dogs, we have three dogs, they stayed home with my husband. And my Penny, she is very like, kind of as a sad dog, like she kind of has sad eyes. She's not like, not like the typical dog that you see where they're like, looks like they're smiling, even though Jocelyn said like, dogs don't really smile. Mm -hmm. But... When I come home from being away, she does have that like happy face, the face that she has when she's like outside running in the dog park and like excited. Mm -hmm. She'll have that just looking at me. And so we always call it, she's giving me heart eyes and it's so cute. (laughs) And then then I get heart eyes and everybody's heart eyeing all day long. That's amazing. I hope that you all enjoyed our discussion around animals and the impacts they have on humans and that impacts humans have on animals and all the things in between. And we really hope we get dog two with Watson because that would be amazing. (laughs) With that, I'll say thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother Depish and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website, BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. Bye! Bye!